Welcome to Pondering AI. My name is Kimberly Nevela. I'm a strategic advisor at SAS and so excited to be bringing you our second season. We are talking to a diverse group of researchers, policymakers, advocates, and doers working to ensure AI solutions put people and our environment first. Today, I'm so excited to be joined by Yona Velker. Yona has been working at the intersection of tech and society since 2005 when they launched a hardware think tank. They think differently and are going to share their perspectives on achieving zero exclusion and embracing diversity in all of its forms. Thank you for being here, Yona. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. So tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming a tech explorer and why you are so passionate about building a better tech future for all. Yes, uh, it's a very interesting question. And definitely my journey was a pretty uh, complicated and comprehensive at the same time because I became a uh, journalist very early uh, as a teenager is, is a way to make a living, but at the same time is a way to embrace and realize my passion to technology and exploration. And actually, I not just cover technology, I find emerging technologists, researchers, startups, um, so exactly what uh, media company is doing so t- today, like Forbes uh, creating emerging uh, entrepreneurs. So I was really passionate about, but at the same time, uh, since I had disability, it was, was the only way to explore the world, uh, being isolated at the same time since I had pretty severe uh, communication, emotional, physical issues. It helped me to really uh, break all of the borders and do so many things. And I would say uh, since the moment when I started to be an entrepreneur, technology explorer, I really uh, learned so many things I never could actually do before. It was completely impossible. So it was like a universal school of life, different skills, and it helped me to explore many technology things and non-technology, explore people, society. And since this moment, I really became much more comprehensive. Um, on one hand, I continue my journey covering technology, exploring it, but at the same time creating my own startups. And at some point, I was really passionate about using AI, using robots, machine learning in order to uh, change the future of education, healthcare, civic technology. Because during uh, the period, I I lived in a very isolated way. I realized how many cool stuff we could create from remote learning to adaptive learning to different type of assistive technology. It's as everything is possible because uh, one of the first stuff we worked was, for instance, uh, stuff related to MySpace in 2009. And I was so passionate about more adaptive content for people. And I started to think, okay, we uh, do some adaptive experiences or personalized content just in order to increase engagement. But actually we can uh, do so many more things with such technology in order to adapt it for visual or hearing impairment or particular cognitive spectrums. There are so many cases where we're able to analyze people's behavior or a specific health pattern, make a particular conclusion and actually help uh, and actually 
uh, expand the border of classroom, workplaces, and so on. And and, and with way, I actually do so many, many things today, and my mission actually includes several levels. On the one hand, it's more focused on technology itself, and I work with emerging companies and startups focused on the future uh, of AI, machine learning for uh, assistive technology in field, for autism, for neurodiversity, for disability, for dyslexia. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I uh, serve for ecosystems which uh, help to empower technology transfer in early research in this field, specifically European Commission, where I evaluate different projects focused on the smart cities, healthcare, uh, future of learning. And at the same time, I'm trying to work on policies and suggestions to ethics to actually adopt it in a more efficient way. Uh, schools, classrooms, workplaces, not uh, harming health, well-being, safety, uh, mental health conditions. Um, sometimes it's also about sexual harassment. Many cases we should take into account. And at the same time, I try to put all of this stuff into the, some kind of a bottom-up movement. For instance, I serve for a, a London Tech Advocate Disability Working Groups. We collaborate with the MIT, with Women in AI, on hackathons, on some kind of a community initiative to involve more people to this work who are underrepresented, who are probably have no opportunity to be part of a corporate world, but would love to work on such technologies to become a part as a developer, as a researcher, ethics professionals. There are so many people who would love to contribute it to many problems, and we would love to all the voices be heard, specifically then today, uh, many problems of bias actually connected to the fact that we ignore such aspects as uh, social groups, income. And when we have more people, we're able to fix it and deliver better. And specifically in such sensitive uh, niche uh, is assistive or neurodiversity technology. You have such a unique seat at the table and bring such an expansive and engaged perspective to the conversation. It's really interesting when you talk about your early days and entree as a journalist and, and not feeling engaged or being able to be engaged. And so I, I think this is such an important perspective. This topic of, and you're talking about including a lot of populations or personas or viewpoints that are not necessarily well represented or represented at all today at the technology table. And certainly inclusion is a hot topic. It's being discussed in the press. It's being discussed in public forums, in boardrooms and beyond. But you really argue that inclusion is not enough. And, and it, it may, in fact, continue to center power or agency in the hands of those that already have power or agency. So can you talk to us about why or how zero exclusion differs from inclusion and why that's so important? Uh, yes. First of all, when I start to think about uh, inclusion in terms of neurodiversity and disability, mm -hmm. I had many discussions with my peers and also one of my peers and one of my good fellows, uh, her name, Ip, she was born in Vietnam and Currently, she drives one of the biggest decentralization uh, funds and projects in the world, actually. And she mentioned, like, uh, inclusion is more about reverse racism, but not actually about f fixing anything. Uh, so many of our members of our community who are Asians ha actually hate all of these reforms. 
uh, after that, I had talked with people who were focused on LGBT inclusion, and they say, no, it's, it doesn't work. And I started to think about inclusion in terms of uh, uh, neurodiversity and disability. And I realized there were actually many problems we have. First of all, we don't ask more important questions. First of all, uh, why we exclude someone uh, at first. For instance, when we work on women and AI, the focus on inclusion of women uh, to AI field, we talk about not just uh, creation of something for women, but by women. Mm. So we demonstrate how women mind can create actually a bit different stuff. For instance, one of our uh, recent hackathons uh, demonstrate with uh, one of the our winners were focused on autoimmune disorders, mental health, and many other topics which typically not covered. So it's not just about uh, exclusion of a gender, it's exclusion of particular type of thinking, and we should ask it first. And uh, after that, I started to think, how is different inclusion or uh, zero exclusion? So there are at least four or five elements which pretty different. First of all, when we talk about inclusion, we always ask about what is primary or secondary. So someone include us. So like a global south, a global north, but it's not correct because, for instance, 70% of winners of hackathon coming from emerging countries. So if you say like they kind of secondary world, it's not correct. I mean, we are partners, we work together. If it's about equality and equity, and you include us to the better world, I mean, uh, it's, it's a kind of vertical or a kind of another slavery. I mean, you just uh, put us, not not very developed people, into the next level um, <laughs> of a segregation. Uh, it's not about equality or equity. Uh, second, it's again about some kind of permission. We provide you with permission to be included. So like we create agency of a permission to be included and we create groups which should be included. And after that, we don't talk about accountability, why we exclude someone before and probably we exclude someone in the future. Because since we create this pretty superficial agency of inclusion, probably we help someone, but probably someone actually didn't get any help because it was beyond our agenda. So I believe that in long-term perspective, inclusion concept doesn't fix the crucial thing, equity and equality for everyone, and actually uh, flat one level uh, communication exchange in order to actually contribute to the gender studies, women's studies, uh, cultural studies, and actually help community thrive, but more importantly, use these uh, insights for technology, for scientific progress, and so on. Because one of the biggest challenges we face today is disconnection between social science mm -hmm. and uh, technology. And it's not about social science to be included to technology. I mean, it doesn't work in this way. They work actually in equal way, like a combination. So uh, once again, we mostly try to create ecosystem portfolios, policies, trying to use all of the elements, not kind of a vertical in some in other levels, like a secondary level, which should be included, but more like an equally important elements, no matter is about research, is about individuals, groups. And that's why I'm typically say zero exclusion for 
everyone, specifically marginalized groups, zero tolerance to any kind of a violation of a rules, laws, or ethics against with uh, people. So, yes, it's a kind of a uh, the, the main logic we try to uh, follow specifically towards children, women, and the most vulnerable groups. Yeah, it's a really fundamental shift, though. It seems so simple in language, but it's the difference between a requiring an invite, an invite-only event, and having an open-door ecosystem that everyone feels welcome to enter. Now, you just mentioned the need for multidisciplinary or diverse teams. And clearly this is when we discuss the idea of responsible and non-exclusive technology design, this is a key best practice. So when we consider knowledge transfer through that ethical and diverse lens, what are the non-traditional disciplines and perspectives that are required? Uh, Yes, it's a very good question. I'm actively working on suggestions for European Commission and other ecosystems in terms of how we could empower and reshape uh, technology evaluation, uh, design thinking, approach to ethical criteria, um, and so on. And currently, there are several main gaps we have. First of all, uh, is understanding of uh, social quartiles, income, social uh, gaps and um, uh, marginalized communities, uh, gender. For instance, when we talk about autism, there's a significant difference how we explore and actually uh, treat uh, autism between girls and boys, which why many girls are, uh, are never diagnosed correctly because we use the same medical profiles and patterns, but they actually a bit different. And the same, for instance, with income. Mm. Typically, when we make user research, we rely on middle class. So most of the marginalized community never a part of a user research for AI, data, uh, data science tools, and so on. So we just ignore them, just not, not because we're biased, but we just forget about it. So in most cases, people who are actually able to bring this expertise to the board, like gender studies, like uh, understanding of particular uh, cultural groups, economic groups in particular city and particular country, specifically if if it's cross countries or cross cultural projects is extremely important. And finally, uh, is about human rights, legal and bioethics, because currently we have a trend to implement ethics professionals into the residents. But as you see, if corporates don't like them, we just fire them if they go too far in exploration of some uh, troubles. So I believe until we actually shape ecosystem where everyone, designers, developers, actually talk the same language, we understand human rights, implications of a bias, of the issues in training data, they actively discuss it uh, during uh, meetups or stand-ups in their uh, product development process, which why we try to facilitate. Uh, it really doesn't work. So it's actually about uh, accessible moral vocabulary, understanding of human rights, and probably some person who like uh, have a bit more expertise in this field to facilitate this process a bit more proactively. So um, I think it's a three key uh, levels. Yeah, this is interesting because as you know, it's fairly easy to ask for input and much more difficult to take that input in when it is contrary to maybe your experience or your objective or seems to you know, raise a level of risk. So as we're bringing in those different professionals, you know, social scientists, psychologists, ethicists, 
just to name a few. What are those discrete steps? And you may have just mentioned a few of them that we can take to make sure they're not just being asked for information that's not being used, but that we're making these contributors an integral part of the team and the decision-making process. Yes. Uh, first of all, um, I don't really like the concept of boards when uh, someone... I'm actively uh, serve as a board member for startups and companies where I dedicate several uh, hours per month. But I believe uh, if someone actually would love to uh, to contribute their, their opinion, understanding and reshape something, they need to be a full-time or at least part-time uh, worker of these um, ecosystems. So first of all, we should be uh, deeply integrated uh, to the process. But unfortunately, we, ha- we have another problem. Uh, recently, we have more and more discussions how we integrate, for instance, ethics professionals into the organization. Should be the employee or they should be independent in order to actually make someone accountable. So, for instance, if they explore something, should they be like a, a part of a government or institutions, external ethics agencies? or uh, corporate employees. So, for instance, I believe they should be um, um, independent but serving particular groups of organizations uh, on a constant basis. I would love to uh, bring some perspective we use on the European Commission. For instance, European Commission uses a very diverse approach. First of all, we were one of the pioneers of the ethics uh, for evaluation of technology. But more importantly, they actually use a, uh, a very diverse approach to evaluators. Uh, they constantly update the pool of people. So, for instance, I'm not able to evaluate the same startups uh, two, uh, or programs two years in a row. So we typically make a rotation. Uh, at the same time, there's always a contract about conflict of interest. So uh, there's a way, on one hand, to put these professionals into the ecosystem where then they're constantly engaged with ecosystem with problems, for instance, of a, a neurodiversity of AI, but at the same time, they're independent from corporate level and let's say revenue making level. So uh, on one hand, there we can be biased, we can be corrupted. At the same time, where we can be influenced by someone who uh, don't want to be accountable uh, for uh, some stuff. For instance, we had... Uh, we had actually a lot of uh, discussion about bias, but I believe we had much more uh, crucial accidents with the companies like Ferranus, who used billions of funding and created almost nothing. So uh, it's actual problem, a problem of promises, efficiency of boards, efficiency of people who should be responsible to oversee and observe a process in terms of ethics, in terms of efficiency impact. But in some reason, they didn't. We, we, they do nothing. And we should understand why. And we believe it's really about independence uh, from corporate level, but in, at the same time, more focus on being a part of an ecosystem. And that's why, for instance, I'm trying to be part of very different uh, ecosystem at the same time. For instance, I serve London Tech Advocate Disability Group in the UK. At the same time, we collaborate with the neurodiversity professionals in Australia. At the same time, we work in the US and Europe. So I don't try to be part of a one ecosystem like government or corporates, because in the end, our goal is to serve uh, patients, mothers, uh, parents, and uh, help this market to grow. And since it's very disconnected until 
professionals much more focused being a part of this ecosystem, not a concrete company. I think it's a re- uh, really difficult to grow these professionals, make them independent, and make them really uh, have a power to make some accountable or uh, actually reshape the process to, be, to make it more efficient, more ethical, and adopted uh, in different levels. Yeah, and, and I've observed that sometimes when we bring those folks in from the outside, we take this approach of shifting the accountability to them, even though they don't necessarily have the authority to affect a decision, right, to change how something's deployed or how we, we think about it. And so this idea of accountability without authority and without shared responsibility is, is really, really tough. Um, I'd like to shift gears just slightly uh, you mentioned earlier assistive technology and, and working with some of these bits. AI solutions have often been strongly criticized, if not outright denounced, for often promoting and reinforcing somewhat gross, maybe arbitrary, and very often binary classifications, right? It might be male, female, gay, straight, risky, not risky, creditworthy, not creditworthy. And It started to bring into question for me the intent behind the rise of solutions recently that are marketed as effective or emotive or emotional AI. And folks may have seen some of these in the news where we've seen articles about applications that purport to understand your work ethic, for instance, based on your posture and your micro expressions, or whether I'm depressed based on the tilt of my head. And by that mantra, I'm always depressed, even though I'm not actually depressed. Um, But regardless of the, I guess, the suspect scientific basis of some of those things, they do seem to lean largely into understanding or normalizing a typical experience or posture. So there might be an application that folks with autism spectrum disorders might be able to use to respond to emotional cues a quote-unquote neurotypical individual would exhibit. But I haven't seen that happening in the reverse, where we have applications that nudge a quote-unquote neurotypical individual to respond to someone who doesn't express or respond to things in the quote-unquote traditional ways. So as opposed to supporting a spectrum of experiences that allows everyone to engage in the way that's most natural for them, these types of applications seem to still promote this on or off idea of a correct or a normal posture and ask people who don't naturally fit that mold to change their behavior to fit in. Am I off base in that interpretation or are some of these applications leading us astray? Yes, um, it's a wonderful, it's a very complex, and uh, <laughs> it's both philosophical and technical and social question. Yeah. So first of all, uh, for instance, when we would talk about uh, diverse and uh, neurodiverse people, there are so many criteria we uh, take into account. For instance, we work with some startups and along with neurodiversity, there are around 100 comorbid conditions, mm-hmm. including digestive system, uh, different neuromuscular disorder, and that's what we put uh, into the spectrum in, in order to, for instance, analyze it and, and better understand general health conditions, for instance. But at the same time, even if we talk only about neurodiversity, uh, we try to uh, evaluate some unique patterns, like how a person communicates, think, learn, emphasize, systemize, memorize, create. And uh, 
all of this become a part of a particular technology flow, UX, UI, design, and so on. Mm -hmm. So it helped to create completely unique experiences, how, for instance, they communicate or think. For instance, we have a uh, platforms that focus on the hiring people with autism for engineering or data, data science positions. And this platform is more focused on communication through chats, less uh, for instance, using of uh, videos, Zoom-style communication, mm -hmm. like a d direct uh, interview. They use a bit different approach to colors. So there are many patterns we use in order to leverage all of the experience, tactile, audio, sounds, visual, car colors, physical and and non-physical, and it became a huge foundation for so many amazing technology we have today. Like uh, eye tracking for dyslexia would help to make your reading better, social robots for assistive learning in autism, uh, platforms for hiring these people, and even biofeedback headset would help to uh, and allow to control, for instance, synthesizers in order to create music to reimagine creativity. And for sure, on one hand, it sounds so wonderful, so many good things. And actually, it's not about promises. For instance, we actually implement this stuff at schools, both in Europe and in the United States. Uh, recently, we've done it in Denmark, for instance. It was uh, pretty uh, easy. I mean, uh, society become more and more open to such innovation. But we have another more philosophical and social question. What's the proportion of this technology that make experience safe, for instance, and eliminate some kind of external, more negative experiences? For instance, person doesn't like to communicate. And we only use chats, text, particular colors, and we create a 100% uh, safe zone. Is it good for overall development on long-term perspective or not? Oh. So, and, and at this point, we actually ask another, uh, we have another thing. It is about human involvement, uh, and it's about uh, eco-chambers, and it's about filter bubbles. It was one of the criteria I actually uh, proposed uh, on the previous uh, document for European Commission. So I've, I've seen initially in media platforms, we created with the AI. When we create, for instance, we use a semantic analysis and collaborative filtering to make personalized content for people, they become a part of filter bubbles. So for instance, they like some content, and this content constantly recommended for them again, again, again. And we use similar patterns in education. So for instance, autistic children use some patterns of colors, text, learning, but it became repetitive. So it actually doesn't create new scenarios because our development always connected to some kind of a going beyond the comfort zone. It actually challenges, which not comfortable, not all the time, but sometimes. So what's why? We have another question focused on how we uh, identify autonomy of social uh, of social technology and uh, assistive field. And that's why I believe, and it was one of my suggestions, is more involvement of human professionals uh, who actually play a role of educators, researchers, uh, assistants, uh, caregivers who actually use technology as a tool, not as a subject of action. Because currently we have a lot of talks about bias, but in the end, only people can be biased. There are, only people can be accountable. We are not able to say that uh, this child had, had some relapse or health issues because social robot uh, didn't act properly, because we're not able to put this robot to the court. It doesn't 
work. I mean, that's why in assistive technology, we create the new field with what we identify as a stakeholders ecosystems, as a parents who are responsible for children, educators, teachers, doctors, and uh, it's actually people who deal with technology and use it as a tool in the proportion which should be used in appropriate way. And that's why, for instance, many companies in social robotics field now position themselves not as developers, but as a learning companies. So they actually create curriculums how to use this technology in safe way. Safe, not in terms of a damage of your health, but in terms of a progressive and smart way of your development. Then you're not constantly in safe zone 100% of time. No, you interact with the technology, with platforms, but also we try to teach you how to interact with your friends, with your mother, with your father, with your community, and so on. So we try to put beyond our comfort zone. And that's why, even though I'm a technologist and most of the time I work on technologies, but it's actually the point where my work are going uh, in the direction of the social science. And that's why we need people from education field, psychology, social science, who uh, become the new breed of professionals and, let's say, social engineers, health medical professionals, educators who will grow better understanding of the implementation of technology in classrooms, in uh, nursing practice, and so on. By the way, some times ago, we even had a talk about it with the Bonnie Clipper. She's a very, she's a huge influencer in AI for nursing. And uh, she mentioned that nurses become engineers nowadays because <laughs> we deal so much with uh, technology. And so we should know how to deal with the computer vision in hospital, for instance, or a, a emergency room. But at the same time, I'm asking her, so what's the line between technology and empathy? So are nurses uh, engineers or they're like a caregivers with big cars? And we agreed that it's a combination, 50-50%. It's actually about any kind of a, any kind of a technology. In, even in Wikipedia is a huge global decentralized project. We use 50% of the people for manual curation and 50% of the uh, algorithms because you're not able just to completely put all the work onto the algorithms. You need double check principle is another field. At the same time, always keeping your eyes on both omissions is no actions and actions because sometimes you need to be involved immediately, specifically it's related to children, which is why we need uh, people around. In particular, action which should be interrupted uh, is about, for instance, misuse or negative impact and so on. So yes, it's a very complex field and we're just at the beginning for instance, hopefully uh, some uh, funds in autism felt more proactively invest in these startups. And I'm, I'm happy to see more and more companies in this field. But I believe after that, we will see another uh, step and it will be more about social scientists uh, and professionals who will learn how to use this technology better and adopt it on all of the levels, agencies, institutions, uh, campuses. And it's even more complex question, taking into account gender difference, cultural difference, economic difference, and so on. 
Yeah, there, there are no easy answers and it's not A or B, is it, um, in terms of that. I think that idea too, that we really lean into technology as a tool and not a replacement for human engagement and human interaction. And also this idea that we should really be ensuring that we're creating safe, engaging environments, but not reinforcing barriers and boundaries inadvertently, right, that, that hold people back. You mentioned earlier uh, the Theranos and the billions of dollars that have been put into some of these technologies with very little to show for them, if anything at all. Certainly, I think realizing this new vision in which diversity and non-exclusion are are really just core to how we operate requires investment. Uh, I know you're involved in, I believe it's called the unit venture. How does that venture diverge from the traditional venture capital approach and why have you chosen to take that approach? Um, yes, first of all, I would love to start with uh, uh, Ferranus. Still, this case is one of, of the most important that I've seen in my life. First, first of all, um, as an evaluator, I've seen many fraud projects uh, and many uh, projects which have no any relation to uh, science, technology. But the worst thing about Ferranus is a social reaction. Once I had a talk with the person who lead the accelerator in justice field, and I asked her what she uh, thinks about Ferranus and, let's say, negative social impact of the situation. And she said, oh, you know, this is so, it's a very good book. I, I, I asked, what do you mean? She says, I, I mean, uh, the, the Bad Blood book was so good. It's very interesting. I mean, for many people, um, the Ferranus case is more like a Hollywood story. I mean, it's like, a, it's a okay, movie. there is some, uh, some girl from Stanford. And after that, uh, she creates technology which didn't exist. There are billions of money were spent. But uh, nobody cared about the fact that it was about blood testers. So it's about element which are crucially used on every step of the medical trials and so on. So actually, it could kill thousands of people or maybe millions. So, I mean, the whole level of understanding of accountability, of entrepreneurship, of a technologist, researchers, just on so low level in comparison to the to the scope of the rounds of mm-hmm. a, a numbers of unicorns is just dramatic. I mean, it's so irresponsible, but powerful people at the same time. So it's really a, a create the new level of a discussion. So, for instance, recently Amazon was fined by European Commission around a six hundred millions of dollars or euros. So, and the, the whole cycle of a Mm, penalties for corporation with ignore GDPR, data privacy, human rights. I'm not able to comment all of them because I didn't introduce all of these uh, policies. <laughs> but 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 at least the fact is that venture capital is far from ideal in terms of uh, um, ethics. And only in 2020, for instance, 500 uh, startups start to think about ESG. They uh, introduced project with World Economic Forum, but really nobody cared about it before. I was involved in this ecosystem and n- nobody even mentioned it as a terms. So everyone was just about hassle and around and so on. So in terms of unit ventures, it's not a venture capital fund. Actually, I'm a part of other venture funds. Uh, a unit <laughs> ventures is more about 
uh, blockchain community focused on stakeholders' economy. They huge around 200 cities around the world, but it's more about, yeah, let's say, this, this decentralized community uh, of the people who build stakeholders' economy. I'm not able to to commentate just due to the lack of a deep expertise in blockchain. Yeah, yeah. But uh, in short, they try to, uh, let's say, advance venture capital in terms of a more decentralized approach uh, in stakeholders' ownership. I'm only say that I'm supported from my, my perspective uh, in AI in data because one of the elements of my work is a data ownership or creator ownership. So for instance, then child or someone interact with platform or robot, everything should be not only uh, private, not only protected and safe, but also if you use the platform and you create something, you actually have ownership over this data. So, for instance, if you're a child who uses a platform or tool or robot to create a musical uh, stuff uh, or some work, you have ownership about it because we have, a, we, we have a lot of uh, data privacy talks, but not enough of, about data ownership. So we are owners, and it's a bit more because it's about concrete assets. So uh, the similarity of my work with Unit Ventures, we all talk about how it's important to understand that now we are not just the citizens, we are digital citizens. We all have a digital property. We have an intellectual property. Every time we create something, even currently during this podcast, we create some assets which can be used in a particular way, monetized, assault, uh, and so on. So, And we should respect ourselves, uh, our rights, and for sure understand it. And specifically crucial, then we talk about assistive technology. There are so many things we interact with person. And unfortunately, person not uh, often understand what happened, unfortunately, due to the cognitive impairment. they typically connected to the caregivers. So from my side, I try to uh, bring this perspective to this field because it's, it's a very sensitive and crucial. Yeah, we, we could talk for so, so long. Engaging in all of these conversations is, is so critically important, but it can be a bit intimidating. What advice would you leave with individuals who want to become better advocates, better allies, uh, and just involved in achieving a truly diverse and non-exclusive world? Uh, yes, first of all, from time to time, I'm reached uh, by people who ask about uh, such advice. This, most often, they're uh, either technologists or advocates. So typically, we try to com <laughs> com combine this element. Bring those two together. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, yes. Uh, so uh, typically, definitely, uh, first of all, I don't ask about permission. Unfortunately, most of, uh, of us are activists. I mean, we're, we're not able to wait for, for instance, policy. So we should uh, actually suggest this policy, create uh, community-driven working groups, initiatives, uh, discuss it, how to make technology more ethical. For instance, most of the um, ethics institutes, they work like a communities. Women in AI is a decentralized nonprofit and community. Montreal AI Ethics Institute work in this way. All tech is human in New York work in this way. I mean, most of the ethics ecosystem created either by academia, mm -hmm. by students, or by communities. So don't ask about permission if you believe that something wrong. If you're a researcher, just do your work. Uh, use some format in order to bring your voice through the platform, through the research, from institutes. Uh, second, don't think that there is a little or a big 
impact. Uh, now we're able to do so many things. We're able, for instance, create startups and complete bootstrap or use crowdfunding or use community to find someone. For instance, we spend hackathons and build teams from scratch. And third, uh, don't think that there is, a, let's say, emerging countries, uh, and though we have a digital divide and it's real, but at the same time, the cost of involvement and borders uh, become lower. Because, for instance, most of the hackathons we've spent recently were spent through Zoom and Slack. And in MIT, uh, most of the people come from emerging countries, and on, maybe only one problem sometimes we experience is the internet connection. What's all? Mm -hmm. But... Uh, Anyway, we're able to create, they're able to participate. So don't try to limit yourself anyway. Think really big, uh, act, don't ask about permission, use all possible channels, try to make your strategy pretty complex, including both reshaping of policy, technology, create stuff, participate in hackathon, participate in community uh, projects. Currently, there are so many wonderful uh, communities on Slack focused on AI, ethics, accessibility, uh, neurodiversity. By the way, uh, just with month in September, I'm organized and chair another uh, meeting in London uh, focused on uh, neurodiversity, and we welcome one of the best uh, neurodiversity experts in the world. And our goal is to connect all of the dots from US to UK to Australia. So what we're trying to do, um, yes. So you are welcome, and we're still on the mission. We are. Thank you. I. It, it's difficult for me to express just how the gratitude for you coming and sharing those perspectives and really just for thinking differently and encouraging and enabling the rest of us to really do the same. So thank you again for joining us. This was extraordinary. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. All right. In our next episode, we're going to continue the discussion of building a more creative, inclusive future with Dr. Valerie Morena. And that's Valerie, so I did not pronounce that correctly. Uh, she is a polymath, the CEO of Intelligent Story, and a leading advisor on the creative economy. Art, artificial intelligence, and augmented reality. We're going to talk about it all. So subscribe now to Pondering AI in your favorite podcatcher. catcher.